Hi everyone, welcome to our event. This event is brought to you by Datadogs Club, which is a community of people who love data. We have weekly events and today is one of such events. Today we actually have two events and there is more of the events. Um, so we have quite a bunch of them. So there is a link in the description. If you go there, click on that link, you'll see all the events we have in our pipeline. So check it out. Today we have also quite an interesting workshop about using Terraform and ClickHouse. Check it out. Then do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. This way you will not miss out amazing streams like the one we have today. And finally, we have an amazing Slack community where you can hang out with other data enthusiasts. This week we'll talk about search and we have a very special guest today, Atita. Atita is an expert in information retrieval, also known as search. She has contributed to projects like Apache on OpenNLP and she advocates for user-centric approaches. She's very passionate about promoting diversity in tech through groups like Women of Search. And currently she's researching RACS. We'll talk about what it is for those who don't know what this, this is abbreviation, not like RACS, <laughs> a different sort of RACS. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, yeah, fel welcome to the interview. Thank you. Yeah. So the questions for today's interview are prepared by Johanna Bayer. Thanks, Johanna, for your help. And let's start. Before we go into our main topic of search, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? For sure. So thanks for having me. I think I would definitely like to say uh, at least one line before we begin that I've always, you know, followed Data Talk Club since I think very beginning. I think it's an honor to be here on uh, Thank you. the live interview. Definitely the, the first for myself. And uh, because we were talking about my name earlier, I think that's where I'm going to start. So I'm not sure if a lot of people have already noticed that my name is actually a palindrome name as well as my last name. It's ah, a palindrome. Both of them. Both of them, yes. Is it a coincidence? <laughs> uh, I think it was a pure coincidence because I definitely checked with my mom and uh, she told me that it wasn't really intended the way. And it's also very surprising that my name, that the meaning, I mean, it's a Hindi driven name because I come from India. And it is derived from the word atit, which means past. So anything or the events that are driven by the past events. And I think our listeners would be very, very uh, smart enough if they can, you know, guess that what exactly is driven by the past events, because that's probably what my mainstream job is as well, like a machine learning model, because it uses the past data to predict the future events. So I think it's uh, it's a mere coincidence that... Uh, my name definitely kind of, you know, falls into the similar stream as of my career. And I'm pretty thankful to my parents as well for naming me this way. So that was a short background of, of my name. And I hope uh, we can now say it correctly as Atita Aurora. And uh, I have no connection with the Northern Lights, <laughs> just to clarify. It's Aurora, right? Yeah. Aurora Borealis. Yeah, that's correct. So a lot of people think that my first name is Aurora, because that's definitely mm. the case in Europe. But my, but my first name is Adita. Aurora is my last name. So about the career journey, as uh, obviously you already have in the introduction. So yes, I started in 2008. It's been 15 years. And if we count like the time before my master's, it would be actually 2007. And I would say that uh, now I'm feeling fortunate that I started very early on with the information retrieval space uh, pretty early on in my career. But at that point in time, like 
as an early 20s person, definitely wasn't too happy with like, why am I you know, pushed into this field? Because I was campus hired by this company, which was really big into like working on the revolutionary uh, products. And uh, it was set up by a Stanford uh, professor. So I think uh, I was feeling lucky that, you know, he chose me out of like the batch of 96 folks. So, but when I joined the company, that the first thing that they asked me to do was like, you know, we want to work on detecting the relationships between two entities. So I obviously realized, you know, in the course of uh, the journey of my career that uh, it's called Semantic Web. So I started working on it in 2007. Definitely a lot of people did not know about it. And uh, the application that I started working on was based on Solar and Lucene. So Solar was pretty early on in like the version 1.2 back then. And there was no Elasticsearch. People were still struggling to move from databases to Solar. And they were really pounding on like why they need to move away from database and what is there uh, not present in databases and why they need to have a full text search engine. So I was born or my career was born between that struggle and uh, while lots of my friends, you know, working on Java JTW applications and .NET, I was battling with this uh, beast called, uh, you know, semantic web. So definitely not a very pleasant time, to be honest. But now I, I feel good that uh, it happened to me very early on. Because it got traction later, right? Like Exactly. Already, yeah. like 2015, companies were using Elasticsearch, Solar. It was Correct. already, like, yeah. Correct. Even Big Data didn't really have the name Big Data back then. I mean, I think only until 2012 is when I really understood that, oh, this is what exactly what I do. I mean... Is it called like big data? Okay, that's kind of interesting. So yeah, I think uh, in India as well, I think we don't really get a lot of traction as well. Probably if I was in one of the Western countries, US or Europe back then, probably I would have been uh, able to you know work on it more. So yes, I think uh, this was the initial part of the journey. And I think back in uh, 2010, 11 is when I was approached by this training company that works the similar way as the Coursera works. And they asked me to develop the course on solar. So I think it was happening more and more, but it kind of, you know, sidelined. I also got to work on a lot of, you know, content management systems because search is a very kind of backbone functionality of any content management system. I mean, definitely people can put on the content, but the major kind of challenge is finding the right content. I also realized that, you know, like matching what the person needs, like how to match right content with right person. It just grew uh, more and more in, uh, as I progressed in my career. So I think this definitely kind of, you know, tricked my brain a lot more than that. And that's when NLP happened. So I understood that, you know, natural language definitely has uh, a lot of prospect. So about in 2012-ish is when I was first uh, using the NLP in my project. What do you mean by NLP? Because, like, I remember, so for me, NLP started also with search. So there is this book, Introduction to Information Retrieval. I think one of the authors is Manning. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the last name. Yeah. And, like, I, the book was very nice to read. And then I was recommending this book to anyone who was interested in NLP as a good introduction mm-hmm. to NLP. Right. So that's why I'm wondering. So to me, kind of NLP and Information Retrieval always came together. Right. I think as of now, I would say that it definitely is like interchangeable sort of a term. But uh, I think search in principle, because as I said, that people were moving from database to a full text search engine, people were still 
kind of, you know, hung up in that token search mode. So it was really hard. I mean, people didn't really realize that they could actually have more than one phrase and they could still have search results. So I think this is what, you know, natural language processing kind of you know, enabled. And uh, we realized that uh, with the content management system, it became even more and more, you know, important because people wanted to be sometimes, you know, like describe the kind of document that they were looking for, sometimes with the content, sometimes with a title. So it definitely boiled down to how do we match right content with the right query? So I think this is uh, kind of where it went into and uh, my curiosity into definitely the other factors as to, you know, for example, what kind of query should match what kind of content based on different kind of business KPIs. So definitely there were a lot of, you know, other factors which came into the equation now. So that drove me towards uh, going for my second master's in uh, strategic business management. And I wanted to understand more about like, how are these business components deducted? So I think this, this got really interesting because I never took up uh, management as my first career because I was very attached to technology. I wanted to, you know, make things by myself. And I think that was very interesting for me. So moving on, I think um, I would be kind of like um, um, not, you know, overbearing if I say that I got a chance to work with all my dream companies. I worked with Lucidworks, which was pioneer in uh, the search consulting and then also open source connections two years ago. This is when I realized that uh, search quality has more than, you know, matching right content with right user and providing a measurable aspect behind it as well. Mm -hmm. And these companies, yeah, sorry for interrupting you because like, I really want to ask sure. you about Lucidworks and uh, Open Source Connections because these two companies, like for everyone who works with search, they know these names. And uh, yeah, especially like if you go to conferences like Berlin Buzzwords, you usually see a stand from Lucidworks. So they're quite present in the community. Oh, for sure. They have their own conference, Solar Lucene Revolution yeah. as well, which was later called Activate when AI became really a thing. So I've attended mm -hmm. those as well as an employee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm just wondering, like, how did you manage to get into these companies? Is it because you, like, did you need to do anything special or, or it was kind of obvious and they said, okay, like, we see that you've been doing search for so much time, like, come to us, work. Oh, it it wasn't that simple, actually. <laughs> I mean, if I talk about from uh, for Lucidworks, um, actually, one of the support engineers was in my class, the course that I mentioned that the one that I designed and delivered for almost two and a half years. So he was in my class and he reached out to me that, you know, I've joined this company and I feel like you would be a great fit because the way you describe things, it would be amazing for our clients to know how things are really happening in the background. It was a pretty long process, to be honest. It was like eight long meetings and they grilled me on uh, every different aspect of uh, Solar and Lucene in terms of performance and, uh, you know, like the application level and everything. And then finally mm -hmm. I got in. It definitely was a very accomplishing feeling. So just having the credentials of teaching a course is not enough because they really want to test that, you know. Oh, yes. It's an oh, yes. Absolutely. Because like they're consultants, right? So they need to right. make sure that you do that. Okay. Right. But like right. from what you said, it's very helpful to teach courses because your students eventually join companies and then they always remember the, the teachers and then they can recommend you. And I would be candid to tell you that uh, when I started teaching the first course in 2013 or 14, if I remember correctly, 
I mean, I started in 2008 and when I was teaching in 2014, it was really hard because there were people in my class who were like pioneers of Java applications and they were asking me really low level questions about, okay, so you're describing faceting, like how exactly would it work? I mean, can you tell me like the low level of how faceting really works, like in a disk or in RAM? And what exactly do you mean by doc values, for example? So it's a columnar index is something that I cannot get away with. So they used to grill me and I used to really feel like, oh my God, this is like really taking all my energy. And I used to prepare for almost like two, three days before for that three hour class on, on a weekend. So definitely, I think that really pushed me going too far with what really needed. And I was digging into the resources and definitely using Lucidworks for a lot of my content preparation, because at that point in time, there was no stack overflow or popularity of uh, such uh, searches and, uh, you know, like the reading material. So I was always looking up to Lucidworks for, you know, different content. And I was like, how is it like, you know, if I could work with such an organization? So that definitely had my, you know, all my dreams and uh, kind of expectations that I would work with this company. So definitely a very accomplishing moment. And I think the similar is for the open source uh, connections as well. Because when I moved on, I realized that, uh, Maybe achieving good search isn't enough unless you can explain what is the good. I mean, you need to describe good in the parameters of the KPIs, the business KPIs. And I think that's what I got to know from um, open source connections. And I think I also got a brilliant opportunity to contribute on a lot of open source um, tools and projects. So I've been contributed on uh, most of their projects that they have and the very uh, welcoming as well. And I think the very structured approach to you know, address the relevancy and uh, the search quality aspect of the search. So I think that they are the people who coined the term relevancy and the relevancy of engineers, and they have a lot of courses and a lot of content around it. So again, great blog post, and I've been contributor on that too. So <laughs> definitely. And I think I, I am taking that uh, legacy that I learned, all of that from them, and I'm trying to apply some of that as well to my new company. So I've started working with Quadrant recently as a Dev Relations Manager. And hopefully that I could uh, benefit all my learnings um, in my new role. And uh, because we're on the topic of also search, I think uh, one thing that stood out to me on um, Quadrant is that uh, if uh, I have an existing search engine, I mean, I could still, you know, experiment with vectors. Definitely, I always say this out uh, beforehand that don't be smitten by stuff because it looks cool it has to be very much you know like implied by your use case so everyone doesn't needs vector definitely and uh, you need to have some sort of uh, you know investigation into if your use case is fit for vectors so mm -hmm. if yes then and quadrant is a vector database right yes that's a vector database or a vector search engine if we can say so i think uh in the world of everything being SaaS based, I think it's it's pretty uh, decent, you know, proposition to go for. They are pretty amazing because I also worked on Rust in 2017, so have um, basic, you know, lot of trust in um, Rust. <laughs> so it's written in Rust, right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So we had uh, a demo mm -hmm. from Caster. I think he is still uh, at Quadrant, right? Yes, that's correct. So he gave a demo maybe a year ago. And then I asked him, okay, it's like Elasticsearch, but for vectors. Like, yeah. And 
written in Rust. <laughs> I would agree. Actually, that was also my first kind of, you know, like the occurrence when I started using Quadrant. I mean, the APIs and uh, the console is very driven by Elasticsearch. I'll be honest. I mean, if people love Elasticsearch, they would definitely love Quadrant. Only that it's more scalable. And uh, because I have been always, you know, the advocate of uh, open source. So all my previous projects, um, be it uh, Solar, Lucene, Elasticsearch or open source even, because that was the last projects that I were working on. I mean, I've been the advocate of open source. And sometimes, you know, because uh, we used to work with the clients, people used to be confused as to, you know, if I should be using vectors inside solar, because I think if we talk about putting vectors in your existing system, definitely it comes along with a lot of um, pain in terms of, uh, you know, having to make uh, changes into your config and then, you know, iterations for ingesting uh, your um, index items, and then obviously configuring like a wrap around how these uh, results would be served. Definitely, it all starts with like what exactly do you want to achieve with vectors. So if uh, that is what you want to do, I would recommend that you should check out you know Quadrant because you don't need to touch your existing search engine because it can stand parallel to any existing search engine and it can natively provide you know first-hand support for vectors only. And then the nature of being scalable and uh, very kind of, you know, plug and play sort of uh, way of uh, vectors, it doesn't really ask you to bring your text search into the stack, which is like you can keep using your text search, whichever stack you prefer. And for vectors, use Quadrant um, in the parallel. So that's definitely like uh, one of the perks that I feel like your existing application isn't really disturbed. You don't need to process everything else. And you can already kind of bifurcate from your uh, messaging queue and put your vectors into Quadrant. So I'm just wondering, so like I know that there is support for vector search in Postgres, for example, then there is yes. support for vector search in Elasticsearch. Oh yeah, also Solar, also open search, yes. Solar, yeah, because like we've seen support that and then- Correct, correct. Like... It fans out to all the products that yeah. use Lucene. And uh, yeah, and then, at the end, you can also have a standalone vector database. Exactly. So when should we, like, let's say we already have an existing solar installation, mm -hmm. which supports, hopefully, it's one of the latest versions and it supports vector search. So when yeah. do we need to go with solar or Elasticsearch or when do we need to look for a standalone database? So I think that's a good question. And I think uh, because um, I've given uh, several talks about, you know, using vectors inside Solar Elasticsearch before. I mean, OpenSearch also supports natively vectors as well. So that talk was basically oriented behind like people need to dump their existing systems and, you know, move to one of these vector search engines or vector databases. So that was not really the case. I mean, if your case is uh, something like, for example, if you can afford to have reindexing, because I've worked in uh, some of the projects where reindexing is not really an option. Like there are businesses who cannot really reindex their data set. And I think this is a very classic use case where you could use Quadrant because you're not really kind of, uh, you know, disturbing anything that's up and running. There would be no downtime for the customers, the existing customers. They can still keep on using your existing sort of solution. Whereas for the experimentation with vectors and trying to figure out if that is what is going to work for your solution, you need vectors. And I think this is where Quadrant kind of comes into the picture. And I think there is a new blog post released today. I think Andre probably you know, posted that on LinkedIn. I think it's a very sort of uh, apt 
description about when would quadrant kind of you know comes into the picture and when it is not uh, you know relevant so definitely like if you're looking for ease of operations and you cannot reindex um, i think quadrant is one of the solutions to go for because i loved it that uh, they're not even pushing customers to like we can do tech search for you we can do this for you we can you know train models for you or we can do n number of things for you we just do vectors the way focused in my understanding when you're focused on one thing because i have been focused on one thing for last 15 years i would say you turn out really good because you're not really distracted by so many different things you're not distracted by you know supporting multiple languages uh, tech search or so on and so forth so i would say like that's definitely worth mm. to try so as somebody who has worked for 15 years in this area you probably started with uh, i don't know implementing creating indices for lucene in something similar to mapreduce without hadoop being there and now it has changed significantly since then so now we talk about lambs vector databases and i'm just wondering like for you in these 15 years what were the major things that happened that you saw in your career oh a lot a lot i mean it feels sometimes nostalgic sometimes if i look back at the stuff that i did in my first company it feels like i probably did that in my previous life because it's so different now because initially my challenge was i was working with solar 1.2 and lucene 1.7 i think they both were different packages so making sure like they worked together it was heck of a thing because it literally like trained me out that how do i make what kind of configuration you know would i put in that these two you know start talking to each other and doing the stuff that i really need to do from there on they become they became like one project in github and now they're separate again and from the feature point of view if we would see like after the introduction of more of natural language processing uh, sort of uh, application features definitely the the focus was more on understanding the queries and then synonyms and stemming and you know lemmatization and then uh, promoted searches um, all of these you know came into the picture as well later part of the kind of era mm-hmm. and then personalization was definitely like another thing so initially the personalization was limited to like uh, you know configured searches or configured brand inside the configuration they were very still stagnant not changing unless someone changes them from there on people wanted you know them to be changing every week or based on the customer demand based on what's popular so popularity index so things were becoming more kind of you know measure and then apply them into your searches driven and then personalization became from like oh what two items were like kind of you know sold together we have to promote this brand we have to have like recommendations uh, which are like if this person is interested in this product what is it that we should record off uh, obviously uh, machine learning came into the picture then um, learning to rank became a thing so the ranking and sorting kind of got affected with that and now we see that it's all about large language models and mm-hmm. um, definitely if i was to say we're definitely moving towards um, more and more rich features uh, with every passing day and now that uh, chat gpt which obviously turned one year old now i think things have um, changed even further because everyone wants a chatbot or a search bot on their business like people don't want to be limited to token based searches anymore people are not satisfied with the uh, 
synonyms or you know rules or search management per se people want more people want their uh, search engine to talk like chat gpt and you know action based and then so many other things i mean i don't know i hope i was able to answer that cover some of the things i might have you and know missed very difficult to to kind of squeeze 15 years into like 5 minutes right <laughs> yeah that's, that's but true but also like i remember so when word to vec appeared I was uh, at university and uh, everyone was like ah oh, have you seen that like you know king minus uh, what was that king minus one plus plus woman is queen oh yeah and- yeah yeah oh that's a very classic example yes it's <laughs> yeah. like uh, one of the examples which uh, I saw in almost all the presentations that I saw yeah. and even now I think I saw a very latest I think presentation which was But back then like okay you have this bunch of vectors and then you have this gensim implementation right right like, how do you keep these vectors how do you use it and then like we implement locality sensitive uh, hashing or locality sense lsh right but vectors in principle like if you look at i mean it's not something that appeared out of thin air recently i mean it's been mm-hmm. a thing since 1970s but like there weren't the basis right so now you just it's so difficult to choose the database back then you would hmm okay have vectors hmm. <laughs> what do you do with them now <laughs> yeah yeah right exactly but yeah i think they were around for quite some time right like yeah the, yeah they've been uh, around like since i mean i would say they're older than me if i was to say i mean the concept is older than me and i think maybe the limitation in terms of the infra was one of the things that kind of held them back and now that we don't have any limitations in terms of you know infrastructure we have gpus and what not so i think that has basically enabled made them fast enough that they can be used in production today so that's definitely like something that has enabled it so but the concept has been around and if you look at the inverted uh, index is also a kind of vector so it's just that it's in the manner of uh, zeros and ones so a sparse index is also a kind of you know vector index it's just that the dimensions are going to be dictated by the number of tokens in your index but it's obviously kind of a vector so i mean if you look at it that's one way to kind of you know pictureize i mean i'm very photographic in terms of my imagination so it was easier for me to think of like okay it's not a new thing that i'm doing it's just that you know we're putting kind of more emphasis on the vectors being generated through another model that has the understanding of these tokens and you know how the context of uh, these um, tokens together would dictate into a pattern or a vector yeah my master thesis was about uh, search too and mm-hmm. i remember reading this paper about vector spaces which was from 70s i think correct yeah if not earlier i think it was 70s right yeah, and yeah, vector another paper from 90s from 1990 mm-hmm. about um, applying svd to correct yeah. yes yes absolutely so i have also linked some of these uh, papers to my uh, presentations so yeah i was also pretty researchy about how did this come into like uh, existence and what was the early on research about it because definitely i was trying to put on my data scientist or you know kind of researchy hat on what more can i find out about it so 
Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, I, I would agree. I would concur. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But now we have these things like rugs that we mentioned, that I mentioned at the beginning when I was reading your bio. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can tell us what this rug, like why do we care about it? Yeah, RAG is the abbreviated form of, so RAG stands for Retrieval Augmented Generation. And as uh, the name suggests, obviously, there are two important pieces in here, retrieval and generation. So what uh, we try to do, and as part of like my previous project with the open source connections, uh, we were working with the client with um, applying uh, a retrieval augmented generation in um, production for uh, one of our very big research companies. And uh, the basic idea is, because I said before that everyone wants like a chat GPT kind of an assistant on their website now. So retrieval augmented generation kind of enables it. So what it does is that... Uh, Obviously, if you're using plain LLMs in your search, imagine like your question being sent to LLM, which has very limited knowledge based on the data it was trained on. It would respond and sometimes uh, you would see that the responses are not correct. So it would make up things and uh, these are generally termed as hallucinations. Or I would say like in a more black and white term that this response is not correct. There are no basis to kind of you know justify that this response was correct. So that's when the augmentation of your data with the existing LLM kind of, you know, took birth. So what we do is that when we are sending the query to the LLM, we provide the context with the client data. So this was the augmentation of the context of uh, the data. And this helps basically the large language model, or for example, the OpenAI model to have a context of this is the question being asked, and this is the context I need to answer this question on. And there are less chances of the answer being a hallucinated answer. Mm -hmm. So that is what I was working on. One of the things, because I've had the background of machine learning as well, is that, uh, and we have measured everything. And I think, in, in my opinion, this is a kind of something that also, you know, business folks need, is that if there is something that you have worked on and cannot be measured, I mean, it doesn't kind of, you know, fits together. You need to define the good. So the good in this case was really hard. The evaluation of such systems are really hard because of the nature of the problem. And we need to have evaluation to justify so many different things, like a go, no-go decision, because there is the reputation of the company at stake. There is the effort of the team at stake, and we don't want to spoil all of that. So we definitely need to have the evaluation to uh, make sure that whatever we are shipping out is worth shipping out. So definitely that part evaluation kind of covers. And we also need to evaluate things based on the business KPIs, because now that we have access to KPIs, the key performance indicators, we need to see that if it you know matches with the business kind of matrix as well. So the evaluation of such system kind of you know becomes really hard because the main, I would say the underlying feature of LLMs is the diversity of the responses. So it's not simple as like the search evaluation because we don't know what it would respond. So in case of, for example, um, one thing that I did not or probably forgot to mention is that out of these 15 years, I've given that to e-commerce search because that's where a lot of, you know, implementations and projects were coming up. So I've had very rich, you know, e-commerce experience and things are also, you know, I I somehow, you know, love e-commerce uh, because the... Uh, Results are fast. You see the response and you see the customer adaptability to the new features very quickly. And uh, 
it somehow is very driven by if you know certain query needs what kind of you know response so what i was trying to say earlier was that uh, in case of for example e-commerce we have a very clear structure in terms of this is the query this is the, res- the response document and this is how much this is relevant so we had access to the trios for example so we knew that this query would give certain number of answers there was concept around precision and recall but rag is much more complicated because llm itself you know need to give you diverse responses like a human being so if you ask a question from a human being there's a good chance that um, it would respond back in a different words or in different you know way to the questions so this is what we wanted kind of with llms as well yeah i, I was just want to s- try to summarize uh, what mm-hmm. uh, rag is before we go into mm-hmm. relation this is an interesting topic so let's say we have a podcast right so mm-hmm. there are 16 seasons yeah nine episodes in each it's quite a lot of information right and for each podcast we have a transcript mm-hmm. and let's say if we want to build a chat application based on top of these transcripts right so we have in slack we have a lot of questions about career and other things and i'm sure for like 90% of questions 95% of questions there is answer somewhere yep from one of the guests yeah right? And then it would be cool to build. It's actually a nice idea. Maybe oh, yeah. we should do it. I don't know about that. This is, this is what I actually <laughs> built. I mean, oh my God. I actually never open-sourced it. I open-sourced uh-huh. a very small rag demo. But yeah, I think I am cooking definitely something up, which would be about rag evaluations and also, you know, rag application. Hopefully okay. you could use that. Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, that also involved the whisper um from OpenAI because mm-hmm. that also involved podcast <laughs> just so okay. not spilling beans about it but yes i mean i was using transcript and storing uh, the vectors of oh. uh, this podcast transcript into uh-huh. the vector database i'm just curious like uh, with the podcast right mm-hmm. so we can do it and then the, mm-hmm. the, we can build a chatbot yep. based on of that right but the problem with OpenAI mm-hmm. it has no idea about this podcast hopefully it has but like If you ask a specific thing like I know about search mm-hmm. might reply but not necessarily with the information I want so I want to use for example our conversation right now right right, right but it might just come up with some answer and we don't know if this answer is good right and it's also timed it's also timed like it is timed for the time when it was trained mm-hmm. so yeah. there is a blog there is a cut off for the information so it doesn't knows about any recent events so for example earlier we used to see with openai that my response uh, set is limited until i think june 2021 something mm-hmm. of that sort yeah. so anything that must have happened after it has to be explicitly provided but if you provide that to openai mm-hmm. or the chat gpt for example yeah. it gives marvelous responses so we need to find a way to provide actually to tell chat gpt or gpt 3 4 whatever mm-hmm. that look we have this podcast transcripts and this is the question from the user right. like right. how can we use the transcripts to answer the question and then our our goal becomes uh, the problem we solve is like from all these transcripts and from like each transcript has like i don't know 50 millions of stuff there yeah like how do we actually find the right thing right. like how do we find the answer to this question or right. in this database and the answer right. is we somehow vectorize them right and this is uh, a augmented generation 
Yeah. So I think that's what I also figured out that there are different kind of, you know, I mean, I kind of prepared and I wanted to save it for my blog though, but it's kind of, you know, four levels of the evaluation, for example, we need in the RAG evaluation. So what happens is obviously depends on the model that you're using. So model has to be driven by, for example, how general it should be or how domain specific it should be. The second being obviously on how the data has been ingested. There are several different, you know, statistics around it. For example, how have you prepared the vectors for the podcast, for example? So how do we prepare? How would we go about preparing it? Because like you can ingest the entire article, right? Or you can just ingest every sentence yeah, or that... you can go with paragraphs. But how Correct. do you select? Correct. So depends on like, again, the user experience. So what you want to deliver. So if you don't want the user to be redirected to like, oh, this is the podcast where you would find the answer. That's definitely not the approach that, you know, businesses want. They want exact thing to be given to the user that this is where your answer is, like a very specific answer. This is where chunking comes into the picture. So which is why you need to invest a little bit effort into how you ingest these uh, podcast transcript. This is where it comes into the picture, like the model that you've used, what is the context length or the token length it supports. So definitely we need to also provide like, uh, when we're going to chunk the entire podcast transcript, how much overlap should it have? Because for example, I may be referring to a lot of things that I might've introduced initially as bold. And then I would be referring to it, them, they, and obviously LLM would not really know like what exactly is it? What exactly is they? What is them? So definitely the overlap is of uh, very, very big importance in that case. And how much overlap does it need? We need to have an experimentation platform for that. Similarly, we need to have like chunking strategies. Some of that obviously uh, Langchain has enabled. So a small kind of demo chatbot you can build with the uh, Langchain. People have been discussing that all over LinkedIn if Langchain is kind of production ready though. What's Langchain? Oh, Langchain is, oh, that's kind of interesting question. I'm not sure if you've not seen it. I've heard the name, but maybe somebody hasn't. Oh, okay. I mean, I would say like from my limited view, and that's what I've used Langchain for, is that uh, it provides you with the uh, different connectors in which your information can be retrieved or information can be absorbed from your you know, vector database or your search engine, for example. And then it also kind of, you know, sits between your retrieval and your generation stages in the architecture. So retrieval is when we ask the bot something and then it needs to find the answer. So this is the, the retrieval part, right? So retrieval part is more like, so for example, if you visualize there is a query and there is, a, you know, a search engine in between. Query is what we put yeah, that's chatbot, the question. Right? That's so, the question, yes. So for example, I am a product analyst and I want to become a data scientist. What should mm -hmm. I do, right? That's the query. That's the question that the user puts in the chatbot. Correct. And what happens next with this? So what happens next is obviously this uh, query would either go directly against a language model or in our case, we would want this query to be sent to our uh, vector search engine. So this definitely what this would do is that your query is going to be converted into a vector and your entire query is going to be converted into a vector search query. And this is going to be sent to the vector search engine of your choice. So this vector database would have the chunks based on the chunk strategy, based on the length of the chunks that you used. 
based on how much of the overlap do you need, how many chunks do you want to retrieve, based on the number of responses you want to have. So as you can see, then like there are a lot of you know different things that you can experiment. So we as of now assume that we know whatever we want in this case, and we retrieve maybe, for example, say five chunks, five relevant pieces of information that would help ChatGPT to answer these questions. So what we do is then comes our prompt, the prompt that basically is sent to the OpenAI that you are probably a research analyst or research assistant, and this is your context, and this is your query. Now, can you answer this question? And then you can define as many guardrails, like if you don't know the answer, please don't blabber, please don't hallucinate, you know, don't just say that I don't know, I'm, I need more context to answer this question. And then you basically process an answer, a relevant answer, which is prepared by summarization of these chunks and is given to the end user. So obviously you can also provide maybe, or you can spice it up by providing references to the related documents where this answer was prepared from, which is kind of, you know, addressing to the explainability of uh, the response. so that. Uh, there's uh, something like, uh, for example, people want that the AI responses should be explainable. So by attaching the resources, we could always, you know, say that um, this is where the relevant information would be found. So there would be some sort of like trust from the user that is built into the system in that case. But as I was saying, evaluating such response is very kind of difficult because a user could have several different questions. It could be about a particular domain. It could not be about a particular domain. And obviously, we are not blessed that we would have you know, access to like the golden set or the judgment uh, data. This is where the evaluation kind of you know, becomes really important. Like We need to break it down into multiple you know, layers of evaluation. So you could individually evaluate the model that you're using to generate the embeddings that go into the vector database. You could individually evaluate the chunking strategy and all the factors that are related to how the content is going to be split. And then you can also evaluate like the retrieval strategy. Like if uh, four chunks are enough or five chunks are enough or we need 10 because the responses are mostly from the assistant as like, I don't know, I need more context. So that all kind of, you know, drives us into a more uh, metric driven system. And then obviously we can have, you know, end-to-end uh, evaluation as well, if the responses were correct or not, maybe using something like NPS, net promoter score, thumbs up or thumbs down, which could be used to broadly identify if the system is addressing its purpose. If you address and answer questions from the users. So mm-hmm. thumbs up stands for like, I was happy with the answer. Thumbs up, I was not happy with the answer. Mm-hmm. There are, again, ways in which we would want it to be adapted into a pipeline like a chatbot pipeline, or we could also do it in an offline way. So I think my blog is probably going to cover both of these strategies. I'm looking forward to, to that. Oh, sure. so I just want to again, go back to the example about mm-hmm. a chatbot for the podcast. Mm-hmm. So let's say we built that. So we somehow split the article into chunks. Mm-hmm. Then we ingest each chunk. We create a vector for this chunk. We store it in a database quadrant, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the user comes with a question. Then we turn this question again into a vector. And then we use the the vector, the query to query the database, right? Correct. Then comes the retrieval part. This is a vector query. Then there's the vector database that returns. 
Yeah, we are, we're going to retrieve the content, yes. Yeah. Based on the vector similarity, we are going to retrieve mm -hmm. the content part, and this populates the context of the yeah. prompt. So we include this in the prompt. Yes. So I, I am a data analyst. I want to become a data scientist. And then this is a question, and then answer this question using these chunks of... Yeah, based on this context, yes. So that's the augmentation part, right? So first, the retrieval. We retrieve it from the database, then we augment our prompt. And generation is we send the entire thing to the LLM and then it generates the answer. Right. That's correct. Uh -huh. And then uh, we were talking about evaluation because like right now I have this rack system with all the podcast transcripts. But now I want to see like if it's working fine. I can, yeah. of course, go ahead and test it, do like three, four, five queries and then see, okay, like it kind of makes sense. But then the, there are so many moving parts, right? So yep, yep. And use different chunking strategies. I can use different LLMs. I can use different databases, right? So the, exactly. like the, the number of, uh, like the, the amount of combinations of these parameters is just insane, right? But I exactly. need to somehow come up with an okay thing that works, right? Yep, yep. And then here we were talking about four levels of evaluation, like at each level. But like for me, like for example, if I want to build the same mm -hmm. thing, What's the easiest way to evaluate that this system is kind of working before I do it? Yeah. Like, do I use something like crowdsourcing or like, is there? I think crowdsourcing could be one. It depends on like, also like how big is your team? Definitely. And that's like a major criteria because ultimately um, I was actually going to recommend a book like Human in the Loop mm -hmm. because ultimately everything needs to go through a human. Because I think the systems aren't really um, well-equipped enough, although there are strategies in which it involves uh, prompting to evaluate the responses as well. So, for example, what I found was um, preparing maybe uh, 30 questions and the sample responses based on the different kind of domains my chatbot is going to be used for. And all of these 30 questions would have uh, one response. So what I could use is, I mean, as, as part of like a more a black and white matrix, the one that we prefer in the search systems like precision recall, NECG, MRR, so on and so forth, we would use vector similarity. Like how much of my response was similar? Again, we are using semantic similarity here. We can again use uh, vectors for that. So based on these 30 questions and 30 questions, you know, evaluated against uh, my RAC pipeline, and also they have the fixed responses already given into the table. How much of my response was uh, similar to the response that I had said is the good response to this question. So again, we're still playing in the world of vectors. Yeah, so there's uh, the book you mentioned, Human in the Loop. Yeah. It's a book from Manning, right? Yeah, Manning, yes. It's by Robert Monarch. Correct, correct. That's the one, yes. Yeah, like I, I know about this book. Okay. And in Data Docs Club, we have a thing called Book of the Week, where we invite authors to answer questions about the book. Oh, wow. Back then, Robert was busy working on the book, and he told me, yeah, let's get in touch later when the book is published. So apparently, it has been published in yes. July 2021, quite some time ago. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed. I was, I was surprised when you said, like, he was working on the book. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it, it was some time ago, yeah. So the okay. community is like three years old. Right. 
Yeah, maybe it's time we talked with Robert. Maybe we can invite him to the podcast too. Sounds like a fab idea. Yeah. And as rest of the podcast, I would definitely be on that one too. I would love to <laughs> okay. um, interact with him because I find this this book is like really amazing. Okay. Yeah. So made in a note to contact. But um, so I noticed that we have a question. The question is from Taras. So Taras is asking, is there any application of vector databases for machine learning? For instance, could it be used for making training of deep learning models faster? Or maybe there are some other applications of vector databases for machine learning? That's actually a good question, I would say, because there is a feature. So I'm not sure how much of these space do you follow, but then recommendation is one thing that uh, is a machine learning feature. And vector databases are like pretty amazing at addressing this because, again, we can use vectors in many different forms. We can use personas as a vector and we could uh, have the recommendation and, you know, have the personas and uh, maybe based on the persona similarity of uh, two people, we could have recommendation of the products. One of the other things that I saw is something that has been a recent kind of uh, change is that recommendation itself has a very changed meaning as you were discussing about the changes. So now people are more uh, kind of, you know, driven towards recommendation in a certain session instead of storing the recommendations for each user because a user could have several queries, 100 queries. So these recommendations have to be updated per session. And this is where Vectors database, especially Quadrant, because I know this is supposed to be launched today or maybe in this week, is going to be one of the changes where we can build the recommendations based on every click that the person provides. And this is where Vector database is going to be amazing because these uh, recommendations would be updated on fly based on every single click of the user. Mm. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah. So I know like, there is this classical approach to recommender systems, which is collaborative filtering. Mm -hmm. So you take like all the users, you take all the items. So then you have this large matrix and you somehow like reduce the dimensionality of this at end. What you have is like vectors for users, vectors for items. And then what you can do is just take all the items, all the vector for items, put them in a vector database, right? And when the user comes, or maybe you can pre-generate it, like basically for each user, you query the vector database, right? And then you get right. like recommenders. Right, right. And then like the, there are many different problems with this approach, right? Because like- Right, so re-ranking was another way in which vector databases, again, could be mm -hmm. of help. So-, so What you mentioned is, so with collaborative filtering, so mm -hmm. we would need to like redo the whole thing, right? And then the vectors we do from another training will be super different from the first training. And what you mentioned right now with clicks, updating sessions, like there are other right, right. techniques you can use that... And it doesn't need any fine-tuning. It doesn't need... Yeah. So in case of like the cross-encoder method as well for the re-ranking, I think you can completely skip that part and you can do it on the fly. So that actually reminds me of something really funky from 2016, like the first time when the recommendation was introduced by Amazon. And I remember that there was a talk given by someone from Amazon who apparently bought a toilet seat and he wrote to Amazon that, you know, I had one toilet in my uh, apartment. I bought one toilet seat. I don't need any more toilet seat. Just get this toilet seat recommendation out of my feeds. I don't need any more toilet seats. So I think the recommendations have also, you know, come a long way from then. 
And I think the session-based, so for example, like TikTok users or any video platform users, like the recommendations are basically built on the fly is what is uh, like kind of a next thing. So which means, okay, so I bought my toilet seat and now I'm searching for something else. Yep. And then you can see that in my last sessions, I was checking, I don't know, pencils, yep. right? And then yep. you see, okay, like I have checked this pencil, that pencil. So this person is probably interested in pencils. Let's just show him a ton of pencils. Right. right Instead of right. toilet seat that I bought earlier, right? Right, right. And that's that's very, I would say, like uh, the sensible like approach. Searching for pencils right now, right? Right. So that's what I'm focused right now. So it makes sense to right. show me what the I'm... The context actually becomes the thing. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. But probably Amazon is doing something smarter so they can know now yeah, things yeah. that are that are currently ordered, things you, that you order and never want to order again, like yeah. the toilet seat, right? So for example, like I like peanut butter and I oh. use Amazon for mm -hmm. ordering that. And I like... They know that I might run out of peanut butter. So this, mm, how about you buy it again? So they yeah. know when they run out of peanut butter. So then they kind of push this recommendation to my face. Right. And when I just bought peanut butter, I don't see this recommendation. There's something else. And so they are, they are very smart. So they know oh. when I will need. So they probably have like a ton of different vector that For sure. Oh, there are like a lot of different permutation combinations, which is why I love e-commerce because it's mm -hmm. like so happening all the time there's something coming into the you know existence there's always a new user need and that really pumps me about about the field mm -hmm. so if somebody wants to learn about classic information retrieval before like all this vectors would you say this introduction to information retrieval is a good starting point or there's something else i would say so and i would highly recommend you reading a relevant search book as well yeah, that's definitely like one thing. And I think we have tons of blogs and I think whatnot. Relevant search. The relevant search covers, is it about Elasticsearch or Solar? I don't remember. It's Elasticsearch, uh, right? I think it's very search engine agnostic uh -huh. in terms of the book, which is why I recommend it. So mm -hmm. you can use, and the, there would be examples that come along with the book, hopefully also solar driven as well, mm -hmm. mostly Elasticsearch. But I think the idea is to communicate the uh, thought process and the analogy of the concepts. And I mm -hmm. think that are delivered pretty well with the relevancy guy himself. <laughs> you know who the relevancy guy is? Duke, right? Jack Turnbull, yeah. Yeah. He was, he did, uh, gave a talk at Data Talks Club at some point. So yeah, it was very nice to have him actually. Yeah. So then when it comes to more recent developments, like all this rock stuff, you mentioned you're working on a blog post. Yep. But is there like is there something else you would recommend to check if somebody wants to learn more about this stuff? I think uh, from the evaluation point of view or from the implementation. Just in general, also from like about rocks. Oh uh, well, I think um Langchain has been like the site itself is like plenty of different things that they offer, hmm. like different ways in which rack could be achieved with different search engines. So that's definitely, I would recommend reading about it. Plus, uh, there's a new resource where I would be contributing my blog on Vector Hub. So that's like another uh -huh. place that I can recommend uh, you checking out. Um, great content. We're working on a lot more interesting content as well. And uh, what else? I think nothing else comes to my mind. Probably already is uh, like relevant search, link chain documentation, then Vector Hub. So please send us the links. 
I'll do that. Like whenever you publish something new, we're also interested to know that. And I assume every time you publish something, you also make a post about that on LinkedIn, right? So we can follow you there. I try to do that. Yeah. Yes. So please make a post when you publish that in the evaluation um, article. And with that, I think, um, yeah, that's all we have time for today. So Atita, thanks a lot for joining us today. And uh, yeah, it was a pleasure. Now I know that your name is a palindrome. I never... It never occurred to me to actually think about that. I'm wondering yeah. how many guests... Mission accomplished. <laughs> how many guests we had in the past with a palindrome name? I don't think we had any. I'll check that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good that we had the first guest with a palindrome. First and last name. And yeah, I think that's all for today. So thanks everyone for joining us today. And thanks, Atita, for sharing your experience with us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you everyone who's been listening today. Thanks. Have a nice day. Bye.